Hello, acquired LPs, and welcome to another great episode of the LP Show. David, this was a delightful interview with Ben from Composer. So, so delightful. We covered so much cool stuff, the evolution of the whole Wall Street bets community. And uh, I just love like it's it's so great that like, yeah, that was like a thing. But some percentage of those people are really smart and are going to become great investors. And that's what Composer's there for. So that was such a cool part. We talked about Packy, our mutual friend, and Composer being the first not boring capital investment memo. Yeah. And also Ben has like a very interesting philosophy on how to run a company and how to go about building products. So it's interesting for most listeners who don't know what Composer is. It's a no-code tool for private investors to create your own hedge fund-like strategies. And it was fascinating sort of hearing about the origin story of how he arrived at that and then going deep also on, you know, all the Wall Street bet stuff and understanding market making and dark pools. And if you want to better understand that world, it's a good episode for you. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mentioned based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature along allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E, Q-U-A-R-T-R.com slash acquired. Or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the Quarter team. Our thanks to Quarter. And lastly, as I'm sure the good folks at Composer would want us to let you know, none of this is investment advice. We may have an interest in things we discuss on the show. This is for informational and entertainment purposes only. With that, on to the interview. All right, Ben, Ben R. (laughs) Uh, I love it when we have Ben's and David's on this show. Ben R., welcome to the Acquired LP Show. 
CEO and co-founder of Composer. It's awesome to have you here. And, and you have the noble honor, I think, of being the first not boring portfolio company, right? That is correct, I think, right? Uh, Brain Trust? No, I think that I think that was later. Oh, 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 not to be on the LP show. You mean the very first investment yeah, from yeah. Not Boring? Ah, yeah, yes. no, that's correct. That's correct. No, Composer, uh, I believe, is the first investment by by Packy's Not Boring Fund. He was the first money into Composer as well. So first, first on both sides. Yeah, he was the first money personally, and then you were also the first Not Boring portfolio company. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's probably a good place to start it. So speaking of not boring and our friend Packy McCormick, before our episode here, I texted him and I was like, all right, what should we ask Ben? We have him on the show. And he said, maybe you should kick it off by asking him about doing venture in the Philippines, which I don't know a ton about your background. I only know about composers. So what's going on there? I've done a lot of wacky things. So first off, I'll preface that I'll be totally open and at this point, not even particularly insecure about the fact that I don't have like super polished blue chip uh, credentials to get my foot in the door. I've done a lot of like pretty wacky things. So at the time that I left for the Philippines, I, I was working for, frankly, a pretty janky startup in, in Montreal. I got this opportunity serendipitously through like a connection of a connection that was like, well, you know, if you have ideas, you can pitch this VC fund in the Philippines. So I had an idea that at the time didn't really make sense, but I flew all the way to Manila to pitch this idea to this VC fund because at that time there were there were no VCs you could really pitch there. So the motivation was was funding to do this. It was funding actually. <laughs> yeah, it was like, you know, whatever. And it just sounded like a wacky thing. I was like, they had opportunity. They're like, why don't you come, you know, pitch? The, we're incubating some things. You have an interesting profile. Why don't you come pitch us? And they were interested because I was like, okay, well, like we don't normally get people from like Montreal. So... Why don't you come by? So I flew in, pitched them, and they were like, we like you. Your idea doesn't make a lot of sense, but why don't you just come work for us? And I said, like, okay. So I moved to the Philippines, and I like lived in Manila for almost a year working in venture there. I knew it wasn't going to be a long-run thing. They knew it wasn't going to be a long-run thing. Frankly, like, I made like very little money. It was not like what venture, you, you associate with venture, like, you know. And it was, it was a relatively junior role, but it was like, it was so, so fun. And the interesting thing at that time, that fund was very small, it was called Kickstart Ventures. And it was like a subsidiary of Globe Telecom, which one of the big telco companies there. But it was very small at the time. Uh, it wasn't much money that they were managing. Now they're actually super successful. They have like multiple funds. They're doing super well. They're one of the biggest venture funds in Asia. And I learned a ton from the CEO of that venture fund. What's the name of it again? Kickstart Ventures. Kickstart. Huh. Unrelated to Kickstarter. Everybody goes, that's so cool. You're working for Kickstarter. I'm like, no, no, I'm working for Kickstarter <laughs> Ventures. So it's a VC fund. The CEO of that venture fund, uh, Manette, I think she is the best boss I've ever had. She's like the most capable person I've ever worked for. She started really from nothing. She was like managing malls at one point and then she kept rising up, rising up, rising up. She's one of the most impressive people I've ever worked with. I learned a lot from her actually. I mean, the people there were brilliant and the companies there were super interesting, superstar for capital. The check sizes at that time were tiny. Things have really changed since then. Like check sizes could be like $50,000 for a sizable percentage of a company. And I really saw there, it's so wildly unfair in a sense that like where you are born, where you live affects so much. And the funny thing is I was coming from Montreal, right? And like Montreal, if you want to raise money in Montreal at that time, 
the valuations, and they're still lower, they're still a discount, right? Like at that time, they were like a fifth of Silicon Valley, right? Like the valuation if you're raising, and it was like just local sharks who would fund you at that time. Like, you know, he owns a nightclub and a restaurant, and he's going to invest in like, I don't know, an app for Montreal or whatever. And then I go to the Philippines and like the valuations are even lower, like considerably lower. And salaries are like a tenth, and costs are lower there, but costs are going up everywhere in the world. So it was pretty fascinating. I think things are very different now. I should check in. What time period was this? This would have been like six or seven years ago, right? At least, or more. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I'm sure things have changed like just so dramatically on that front, you know, with the liberalization. We'll get into how you're building Composer is like completely remote. You know, you're off in the middle of nowhere right now, and that's all possible now. But okay, so tell us what is Composer for folks who don't know? Absolutely. Composer is an automated trading platform that allows investors to easily build a portfolio of systematic trading strategies. So instead of struggling to implement strategies yourself with endless lines of code and endless spreadsheets, Composer breaks the strategy creation process into building blocks that can be infinitely combined using our no-code visual editor. And then once you create and invest in a strategy, Composer will automatically execute trades based on the strategy's logic. And if you're not ready to create a strategy from scratch, you can choose from our collection of vetted pre-made strategies. And the whole kind of pitch here is Composer makes those kinds of strategies that are used by top hedge funds as easy to access as stocks or ETFs. So by strategies, you don't mean like, uh, you know, I think a lot of acquired listeners would probably be like, well, my strategy is I think Amazon is a generational company or XYZ or Tencent or pick whatever. I'm going to buy that and, you know, hold that forever and be David, don't reveal my strategy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the funny thing is everybody has a strategy, right? Mine just doesn't hedge anything. (laughs) (laughs) And they're just a varying degrees of sophistication. So like technically you could do that in Composer, right? Like... You know, what I love about something like Excel that is so compelling is that you could do like really simple, almost stupid stuff with it. Like you can use Excel as an overpowered calculator to add three numbers. I mean, it's kind of oh, I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So you could create a strategy that is a hundred percent allocated to one asset, which in this case would be Amazon. And that would be your strategy. I just think Composer might be overkill for that. You could do that other ways. There's but this you... great app called Robinhood that <laughs> we're here to tell you about. Yeah. I think defining what a strategy is in the context of Composer, you know, it's an interesting question. And I think it's this, the idea that you have some sort of repeatable rule that you want to automate with the operative word here being like automated. So like you don't really need automation if you want to buy 10 shares of Amazon because you just, you know, it is a one-off thing. You're done. A lot of people, if not most, actually do want to do something on an automated basis. That was the original value prop of robo-advisors was like, you know... Automated rebalancing. Exactly, yeah. Or even like investing a part of your paycheck every month or dollar cost averaging into whatever your bucket is. That's a strategy. A strategy doesn't have to be ultra high frequency trading where you're like trying to move closer to the exchange to shave off nanoseconds of execution time. That is a strategy too, but that's a pretty complicated one. It can be as simple as I want to rebalance 60% stocks and 40% bonds on some cadence. And that's a totally valid strategy. But Composer obviously enables you to do considerably more sophisticated strategies than, than that as well. Is it a productivity tool on top of places where I already custody my money? Or do I say, 
thanks, Fidelity. It's been great, but I'm actually investing my money with Composer now. So our focus is on the latter. And the reason for that is that in practice, it's just such a better user experience. So right now we do integrate with, we allow you to authenticate with Alpaca, which is a third-party brokerage. And we're not like a clearing broker custody ourselves. Something that we're about to release that we're super, super excited about is that we are integrating so that it will be like funding a Composer account, right? Like we're white labeling the broker so that you go to Composer, you open an account, you transfer the money to what feels like Composer. Most of these trading apps are actually have a partner on the, that they have on the back end. But from the perspective of the customer, it will feel like you are just interacting with Composer. And that just leads to a much better user experience without putting any other app down. Some of the ones that I've seen that try to like sit on top of other brokers, the connection to that data is constantly breaking. It's constantly getting fried. It's just janky. It's probably also not, things are not executing that fast, right? Too, which depending on your strategy may be important. Yeah, exactly. I think Apple learned that a long time ago, generally speaking, when you when you integrate different parts instead of making them modular. Modularity sounds really cool in theory. What we've learned, and I think product designers have learned over and over, is that when you integrate things, you just get much more seamless experiences because you have more control. So how old is Compose? A year and a half, two years old, something like that? A little under two years. We start. We, we officially incorporated end of April 2020. It's COVID, baby. <laughs> you raised a seed round from amazing investors like Packy McCormick individually and not pouring capital, but also first round capital and you know plenty of other awesome folks. But like you've raised a seed round and you are a, not technically, but from a user experience perspective, basically you feel like a brokerage. A, it's freaking amazing that a company can stand that up in this day and age in that amount of time with that little amount of capital. Like that would never would have happened five, 10 years ago. That's one. Two, how the hell did you do that? <laughs> What's happened is the ecosystem has evolved. And that's kind of answers the why now, where you don't have to go into this super long relationship with these legacy dinosaur banks to become a trading platform. And I think it's helpful to break down what goes into a platform like ours. And I think there's really like, if you break down our value chain, there's three main categories. There's data, like every trading app or platform needs data. It ingests data. Then you make some decisions on top of that data. That's like the trading logic. And that data is like, hey, what's the current price of all these assets? Exactly. So like data is like, yeah, what's the market price of this asset? A lot of it's just that, frankly. That's a huge part of it. And then taking those inputs, you make some decisions on that. And, and then the output is orders. You make trades. And you have to send those trades. At some point, they have to actually clear <laughs> with some bigger broker or that you send it off to or on exchange. Or some, you know, these apps, they send it to other sorts of pools like hedge funds or whatever to, as, as market makers. But anyways, you have to send an order off and that order has to actually execute. What we did is we looked at, like, put all this, this value chain on a drawing board and said, okay, data. Well, there are APIs that provide data, right? We don't have to build that from scratch. And then trading, well, brokers are actually becoming more and more commoditized. That was part of the sort of market analysis we did. I said, okay, well, all these brokers are now offering commission-free trading. So clearly this is maturing to the point that it's moving towards commoditization. So it's no longer that differentiated of a technology. And at that time, there still weren't that many 
good APIs though. So it's it's not that mature. It's not the equivalent of like that there was Plaid for like a brokerage platform. No, not really. Not as seamless as Plaid. Definitely not. It was still heavier than than that. Although there are new entrants that are really changing that. So someone like an Alpaca, we we work with them. Alpaca is an API. It's a modern REST API where you make API calls with, with instructions to that API to buy or sell some quantity of of shares of of securities. There's also Embed uh, Financial is launched recently. So there's these new entrants that are coming in that are trying to be sort of like the stripe of trading. A lot of companies don't have to handle the sort of incidental complexity and all the, all the crap that goes into billing or payments because of Stripe. So they can really focus and specialize on where they add value instead of this undifferentiated heavy lifting. What we saw, and just like you saw with Cloud 2, AWS and GCP, all these sorts of primitives, all these building blocks are, were starting to form in the industry that made it a lot easier to build a company like ours. Having that ecosystem readiness is so essential to something like, like this. It's all about timing. Like This stuff is all timing. And, and we saw that opportunity. It was still early though, right? It was like at that time, it was still early. Like it was not, you know, Alpaca at that time, I think had just raised like a series A. These were not mature companies, but I could see that being Canadian here for a second, you know, you want to go to where the puck is going to be. I think that's what Wayne Gretzky said. I probably just, yeah. <laughs> right? So you want to go to where the puck is going to be. And we saw where the puck was going to be. And, and that's what we saw. So, but in those three components, the trading logic or the strategy layer, that nobody's like really done well, like at all, actually. Like that you still have to like, I don't know, do it in Excel or do it in Python or something. Or there's like B2B companies, right? No one's made this for individuals. There's plenty of people that will like do it for like software for financial advisors or for hedge funds or but the hedge funds are typically writing something proprietary. Yeah, it's mostly proprietary. Even that software, my guess like the stuff I've seen is really either like kind of janky or it's like old, you know, it's old school B2B legacy software. I don't know of any well-designed, you know, web-first modern consumer grade UX for this problem. I was solving a problem that I had. And so I looked around and I was like, okay, there's nothing. How'd you pick like a segment and a business model for this? It sounds like you could add value for anyone who's investing. And then the question is, okay, who do you go after and how do you monetize it? So in terms of our target customer, the main pain point that brings our most fervent early adopters is that they had a similar problem as I had, which is they have like these, they're trying to cobble together some Excel spreadsheets. They're hacking together Python or R scripts or whatever, and and just failing. And, and to be clear, not because they're stupid. Uh, a lot of our early adopters are engineers. A lot of people work in tech and are technical. And I think that will only grow. Like the number of technical people is growing. And even then, it was just not worth the the pain and misery that went into this, right? Like even if you're a programmer, it's not that fun to to just deal with lots and lots and lots of incidental complexity and dev environments. Some people like that stuff, but most don't, right? Like you ask a lot of programmers, like what part of your job you don't like? And it's like, I don't like DevOps or I don't like doing crap that isn't actually, I'm just redoing something that just has to get done, but it's not, it's not intellectually stimulating. Well, a lot of the actual dev work that would go into, say, setting up an automated trading system is very laborious and not particularly rewarding because it's just like crap you have to do. 
And then obviously a lot of our customers aren't engineers. So like, then, then what about all the people that can't code, which is still a lot of people or people that like know a little code. Like we, I think there's a huge market that's kind of ignored and it's going to keep growing. It's going to keep growing of people that are not professional software engineers, but like they might write some like custom functions in Excel and they're like, you know, a little geeky and analytical. And like, we get a lot of those people too. I mean, BI is like a gigantic emerging, like still rapidly growing field, right? If like everyone is learning SQL at all parts of the organization. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> of course this hurts my ego a bit, but I'm kind of one of those people, right? Like I'm not a professional software engineer. I worked in data science, but, and I can, I can code, but like most professional software engineers do not want me shipping production code, right? Like, <laughs> so there's a lot of people like that. Well, it's the exact same dynamic as as like a web flow right like lots of people who use web flow can make a website on their own are fully capable of coding a website but like you wouldn't really want to do that right like you know and there are also lots of people who use web flow who are not at all capable of coding a website and that's a perfect analogy that's i mean that's that's exactly it and we were really inspired by those those tools we were inspired by web flow we were inspired by figma we were inspired by Squarespace and all, the, all those all those kinds of, of tools that give those powers to people who either can't code, know some code, or even people who can code, but it's just a terrible use of their time to reinvent the wheel. I'm pretty sure we're talking about like April 2020, sort of beginning of COVID. This is pre-GameStop and Wall Street Bets going supernova, right? Absolutely. And at that time, it was absolutely a very niche market when you talk about like systematic trading. There was like weird internet forums. Again, they were growing at a fast rate. And so a lot of times I look at things and it's all about, I look at like, okay, don't look at the intercept, look at the slope, right? Kind of thing. And the slope was like, eh, okay. And it's crazy. If COVID at that time taught us anything, it's when things are growing exponentially, well, that's the other thing. Look at not just the slope. Maybe there's a, look at the second derivative, right? And uh, if that's positive and you have acceleration, then well, if COVID taught us anything, it's that you know don't underestimate exponential growth. These are small communities, but they were growing really fast. Yeah, when things are already obviously huge, those things tend to be saturated. It's it's already you know the, the secret's out. And here I kind of saw a secret. I was like, whoa, this is going to be something because it's it's growing really fast. There there is something here. And I, I looked at like subreddit stats. I looked at like what are the fastest growing subreddits. One of the fastest growing subreddits two years ago was our algo trading, which now has like 1.4 million members. When I was starting Composer, it had under, I think, around 100,000 in that, in that range. Where can you go to get analytics on subreddit growth? There's like subreddit stats or something.com. If you just Google it, subreddit stats, you, it'll, you can look up subreddits and it'll give you the stats. That feels like a great place to mine for startup ideas. Exactly. Everybody who's looking for an idea, every MBA is going to go now look at this. <laughs> every VC associate out there is now <laughs> is now going to want to research which subreddits are going. But it's the other thing though was frankly in like the, all the Wall Street bets stuff. So Wall Street bets started like popping off way before the GameStop thing. It was popping off because people were like, not only not investment advice is a terrible idea. They were. <laughs> They were buying like naked puts on spy, like huge amounts of them, like with leverage and shit and doing crazy shit. Cause they were like, okay, there's going to be like a huge correction because of COVID, which is a pretty easy call at the time. So which they, seemed know. very logical. I mean, that we were hitting circuit breakers every day. Yeah. So they were buying huge amounts of like out of the money puts and I was falling and it was, it was really funny. It was like, it was, I mean, maybe I just have an infantile sense of humor. I, I was falling just cause it was funny. 
But the thing that I, I saw was that on Wall Street bets, you saw a lot of these like sort of eccentric people out there that were becoming more sophisticated. Like you were watching them learn. I think Wall Street is overly impressed with themselves and all industries are. It's not just Wall Street. Look, I, like, I don't want to say that the tech is so you know enlightened and Wall Street's stupid. Like people in tech also like to think they're smarter than they actually are. But Wall Street really does it. So they like, you know, you use lots of jargon and acronyms to make everything more complicated. And no, you can't do this. And what Wall Street bets kind of said is like, no, we can. Like, we understand what you're doing. And that's really like when I see like the GameStop thing, I think the point that a lot of people that missed in that, a lot of pundits missed is they're like, oh, these, are, these people are idiots. Some of them were. Some of them were really smart. Like even Matt Levine had to be like, actually, like they were right and I was wrong. Like they they figured out how to orchestrate a gamma squeeze. I thought the market makers were smarter than them. They were smarter than the market makers. Like that's pretty wild. They outsmarted market makers <laughs> who had a really imbalanced, you know, order flow and like managed to do all kinds of crazy stuff. So I mean, that that's that's pretty wild to me. They could understand. It was like they were using Robinhood, but they were like talking about all the Greeks and they actually like were teaching each other and they're being really vulgar. So I think people dismiss them. But th the point here is that they were like much more sophisticated than people gave credit to just because of the irreverent tone of the conversation. But they weren't stupid. Some of them were, not all of them. Some were actually pretty bright. The thesis there was that there's like a much more sophisticated segment than we maybe give credit for that's out there. There's a natural tee up here to like, okay, so did that segment start using Composer once you launched it to the world? And what's the journey been like? But before that, I'm interested in this idea of the Wall Street betsification of finance. And I'm curious, what like second and third order impacts has it had on the markets as a whole that we have all these people not only trading on platforms like Robinhood, but like starting to use leverage for the first time? And how has market making changed? And in particular, like you, you mentioned, some of these apps use pools, like different pools in order to match the supply to demand. And it maybe doesn't make it all the way to the market or to the exchange. What weird stuff has happened in the last couple of years in the stock market that is uh, the fallout of this? Well, a lot of trading activity happens now off exchange. And the reason for that it's not as ominous or nefarious as, as I think sometimes people make it out to be. It has, at least in the short term, made transaction costs less for consumers. So just as like a primer, you know, if you execute an order on exchange, on, on an official stock exchange, a customer that does a market order might pay what's called the MBBO, which is like the best bidder offer. And that's essentially that they're required to give you the best spread that's available on any public exchange for that security so that you can't get screwed. And what apps like Robinhood and other, and other trading apps have realized is like, okay, well, what we could do instead is actually get better execution by selling to like a big market-making hedge fund and sell that order flow to these hedge funds. And they will actually share some of the spread back with us and we'll share some of that spread with our customers. So they get uh, essentially a revenue share of this tighter spread. And it works for the hedge fund because they're still making money. Because if you're sending a bunch of retail order flow to one of these hedge funds, 
that's the hedge fund as the counterparty for the trade. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So they'll they'll take all that order flow and they're not taking any directional position. They're just saying, okay, we'll make a market in this. And they're going to assume that, frankly, all that retail order flow isn't informed. When I say uninformed, it just means that they don't have any knowledge about where prices are going to move on like a really short time scale, which is true from basically any retail trader. And therefore, they don't have to worry that if they fill it, like that they're going to get they're going to get screwed. So it's it's actually desirable that 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 order flow is what they would call uninformed. And so they can basically pretty reliably know that if it's retail, that they're going to make that spread, which reduces risk, which means they can actually offer a narrower spread on those orders. So so the bid ask spread actually narrows as a result because there's a less risk to that to that hedge fund. So they like all that retail order flow. And what they do is because there's a narrower spread, then what some of these apps will do is they actually will give better spreads to the to the customer. Again, they legally cannot give a worse spread than the MBBO. It's not so nefarious. It's like it's not so toxic for the consumer where it becomes sort of, it can lead to some skewed incentives because some of these apps, they make money the larger the spread is. So they might steer a customer to more illiquid or, or assets with larger spreads because then they'll make more money. So what's showing up on your home screen or your push notifications or something? Exactly. So it can it can screw up incentives. But if if you know, certainly if you know what you're doing, I don't think it's a bad thing because what this PFOF does, it's a revenue model, right? So the the, the hedge fund shares, it's a rev share agreement, shares some of that spread with, with like Robinhood or whatever. And then Robinhood or whatever, whatever app doesn't have to uh, charge any commissions. So then you're, you're giving commission-free trading to your customers. I mean, if it's lowering costs and you're not like a high-frequency trader, I don't see why this would be bad for customers. I think it's just very, it is quite complicated. Like it's a mouthful just that I just explained, right? Like, and so I think when things are confusing, people's first reaction is to be like, it must be like evil. Most of the activity that's happening on you know, a consumer platform like Robinhood or the like isn't strategies based on micro time scale, you know, optimization. Exactly. By definition, it's not. You know, if a high frequency trading hedge fund makes like a little extra spread on my order on Apple, like that's meaningless to me, right? Like as a retail investor, that's like, I want to buy like five shares of Apple and hold them for a while. And not only that, you probably would have paid more if you traded on exchange anyways. Now, if you want to get really technical and I want to go down that whole rabbit hole, there is a game theoretic argument that if you, and I don't want to give throw a bone to regulators, but if you put everything on exchange, you could argue that possibly spreads would narrow because the existence of these dark pools then increases the spread on exchange. And that's why you get better order execution off exchange. There's an argument. But it's not like Citadel knows that Apple's going to go down over the next month and I don't know that and they're screwing me. That's not like quite what's... No, that's not not their model at all. They're not taking a directional position at all. They're just hoping that all the orders balance out. It's completely market neutral. There's no no directional position on that kind of business. It's interesting. The dark pools thing, this is only something I learned recently and kind of blew my mind that the reason it's dark is because supply and demand are not being matched by the exchange. They're happening off exchange in a different pool. So if you're subscribed to exchange data, you're actually not going to see that 
that transaction is even taking place. That like the amount of data that's like visible to anyone who's looking at exchanges is less than it used to be because of this new business model. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Like getting getting a holistic picture of all like order flow is really, really hard right now for that for that exact reason. It's fascinating. I totally buy that game theoretic argument though, that you get much narrower spreads if we were all forced to actually go to the single central market maker for any given asset. Yeah, it's sort of like a prisoner's dilemma type yeah. thing. Although I'm probably out of my depth now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an economist. So maybe let's rewind a little bit. You were the reason that, you know, we're joking about Packy and not boring and all this. You worked with Packy <laughs> at Breather. I did for many years. For many years. For several years. You were yeah. uh, head of data science and then head of product at Breather? Yeah, the trajectory is I actually started, I just started as a rank and file data scientist and I was promoted a few times and then I ended up as VP product, running product and data science. And then we were in this crazy like office of the CEO situation where we were co-CEOs of Breather in this wild transition period. So it was a, it was an adventure for sure. You know, you mentioned that when you started Composer, it was like you were having this problem. Like you would imagine hearing this episode so far as like, oh, at some point in time, Ben, like, you know, was a quant, you know, data scientist at a hedge fund, right? Like, and that's how you came into this. That's not what happened. <laughs> no. And I don't think that's an accident. And I learned increasingly why. Because people who would come from that background probably wouldn't have the empathy, <laughs> frankly, for the problems involved. Not that they're low empathy in general or bad people. Product thinking is different than quant thinking. And I think that by nature of my roles, I happen to see the value of both. And I'm not saying one is at all superior to the other. It's just a very different way of approaching problems, right? Like a quant hedge fund mindset. And I actually remember I was interviewing for a while at one point at like D Shaw or a hedge fund like that. And they were trying to bring me in for something related to like incubating something on the technology side. I said, why are you doing this? You have all these people with better credentials than me. Why are you interviewing me for this role? I said, I just found I'm kind of selling myself out of the role. And they said, because like these people, they're, they're like the world's most preeminent expert on this like one tiny thing, this one like very narrow thing that they're optimizing. Like it's so mature at this point that they did a postdoc on this thing and they want to like focus on that thing. And that's, that's it. They're not going to go like, rebuild a whole new product or way of approaching something from scratch. That's a lot of it. I will say that I've also been trading investing since I was a teenager. I've had this uh, as an interest. And then I've worked on a lot of problems that involve data. And, and that, that's a huge component of this well. But then also there's a product aspect. So there's a certain amount of synthesis here that was, that was required. As opposed to say like optimizing, again, like this is a product company. It's not, how can I create an adaptive order algorithm that shaves nanoseconds off of like some trade or something? Like it's not, it's not that. And to the extent that there's an optimization function to create the best product here, you don't even really, when you're starting the company, know what you're optimizing for. I mean, I guess it's like enterprise value or something, <laughs> like some, some very long- It's a wicked problem. It's right. A, it's a wicked problem, not a tame problem. It's a very wicked problem and it requires- divergent thinking rather than convergent thinking in the beginning. You have to like, you have to do this sort of generative process of generating a lot of different ideas and trying to connect and then connecting them. And that's not comfortable for, for a no. lot of people. 
I mean, there's no, when, yeah. when I tell you this, the sentence, there should be some kind of product that lets you compose different building blocks to execute trading strategies. Like that's not a product spec. There's like a zillion questions that stem from that. And it's like, okay, who, who's using it? And like, how much should we presume that they already know? And like, what's the atomic unit of a building block? And like all this stuff just creates a, like a wicked problem. When you start, everything's very high level, like inherently. You're like starting with like the, and it's funny because a lot of people talk about how ideas are a dime a dozen, execution is everything. And for the most of the life cycle of a company, that is absolutely the case. But I do think in the very beginning, like the idea does matter because it's, that that is the execution. In other words, like it's very hard to even disentangle the two in the beginning. So like, like you're saying, you have to take this idea that's kind of a high level problem statement and then keep breaking it down and going to the next level of abstraction. Because that's like a very abstract problem. You have to keep breaking it down and resolving it to a lower level of abstraction until you're actually building a product. And that process is, is difficult. So I don't even know if it's ideation or it's execution, but it's, it's definitely a big part of the initial creation of, of, of a startup. And it's one of the hardest parts, and it's one of the most mysterious. Like People have tried to scientize it and systematize it, and... And mostly failed, in my opinion. You're talking to a uh, startup studio founder here and the other, you know, Ben G on <laughs> the line sorry, here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but no, but that makes it a good problem. Because people have failed to do it, I think that's what makes it an interesting thing to try to create a studio for. It's funny. I can tell you, we have not gotten better at having better ideas. We still, six and a half years in, kill 90% of the ideas that we actively work on, <laughs> despite having lots of systems in process to work through these ideas as fast as possible. We've gotten more efficient at killing ones when we think they're going to end up bad, but it doesn't mean that your raw material input gets higher quality. Yeah. I, I think one of the most fascinating things there, for example, is like, why is the distribution of startup outcomes largely unchanged? Like, Why would that be a natural law? Is it like, is it a natural law? Like, is it just natural law that 90% of very early ideas fail? And then like, there's a sort of distribution that like, as you go through stages, but it's like been remarkably stable. And, you know, even the top tier VCs, what separates them from like third tier VCs or second tier VCs is simply that the winners, are, it's just the payoff. It's not the actual probability distribution. It's the payoff function. It's that the ones that hit just hit harder. Oh, that's like our two-part series on Andresa. And it was like, you know, that was the whole thesis. And everybody was like, show me the money, show me the money, show me the money. And then they're like, Coinbase DPO, you know, like there's the money, you know, they made $11 billion. People were talking shit about A16Z. It's like, oh, their IRR isn't very good. Oh yeah, that 2015, yeah. Yeah, it's like, you don't know that yet. But then, then it's really interesting. It's so hit driven. But yeah, like their distribution of outcomes is probably not that different from any other firm. It's just that their, you know, head of the power law netted them $11 billion. Like, that's the difference. Like, <laughs> Yeah, you get one event that returns the whole fund, and that's, that's, that's the game. And I, it's a little frustrating that at a level of a startup that you don't have that sort of diversification. So then it becomes a question of, can you recreate that, you know, internally? While still having conviction, obviously, you can't just throw spaghetti at the wall. So obviously, because you don't have infinite resources, so you're faced with this abstract problem that every time you sort of put a stake in the ground, you end up with five more questions. So like, what were some early guardrails that you put in place where you're like, okay, we know for sure we're doing this, not that. And how did you sort of get from the broad idea to what it is specifically in code that runs and designs that look nice today? So I think you need to have 
a high level set of guiding principles. Like you need values and you need guiding principles. And this becomes almost just like companies have like values. And we, we, we had these very early before we even incorporated, we said, okay, we need like to codify our values in like an, a cultural sense and an HR sense. I think you need product values. So you need, you need attributes that are evergreen. Otherwise you don't have a distinctive product culture. So there was three that I came up with pretty early. They're gorgeous, accurate, and fast. So those are three examples of, of attributes that were going to guide this. And then, and then just more to the point that this was going to be a product that while solving something quite technical and serving a relatively technical audience was going to be guided by design principles and by usability because almost no one else in the space of like these sort of prosumer trading tools. They're just like, some of them are actually quite successful businesses. They're not sexy, but they actually are, some of them are actually extremely successful businesses, but they're not well-designed and they don't put usability first. And so one of the easy constraints was just this high level constraint, which was like, okay, we have to balance flexibility with usability. And, you know, we have to be opinionated in our design so that we we steer people to use the product in a way that it just functions and works better. So that means that you can't do what a lot of failed no-code tools do, which is you say, okay, I want this to be like a totally full-functioning programming language that's like Turing complete and does all these things and does everything at the expense of it being at all usable. I mean, that continues to be like one of the hardest problems. It's so hard. I wrote this article with Packing, one of the things about, about Excel, and one of the things we really talk about this, because we were like, We've been talking about this for a long time. It's like, why is Excel such an enduring piece of software? Why is it so successful? If we had to like have a bullet point thesis, like it's the only thing that's usable and flexible. And that's actually incredibly rare. Like how many things can you think that are like have total flexibility and are extremely usable for for regular people? Like that's such a insanely difficult challenge. So just that alone focuses you a lot. If you say it has to be usable, but still flexible enough to hit these XYZ use cases, that's an incredibly focusing product objective. What was the journey from, you know, April 2020, you're starting this to there's a product that works <laughs> and that people can use? It took a while to actually build the MVP, not surprisingly. Like, it's we're doing something that isn't just like a, a, a riff on something that already exists. So when you're doing something category creating like this, it was pretty hard, right? Like, we had to do a lot of mock-ups and prototypes. And we spent months just doing user research on prototypes and proof of concepts, creating like videos, Figma prototypes. We did just like hundreds of hours of, of qualitative research of user interviews, just like, does this make sense? Does this make sense? Because again, getting something that's powerful, usable is so hard. So one of the biggest challenges is like, it's, it's almost like it's a cognitive science problem more than anything. It's like, do you understand this? <laughs> you know, like if you validated that, it doesn't make sense to ship a whole bunch of code. So we spent like months in that, in that stage it took almost a year to really have something that was was actually ready to be used by real humans and and then it really like evolved quickly from there uh, once you have that initial foundation and then and then you can just keep iterating but to build that initial foundation was uh, it was hard it was definitely really hard and so you've got this like usability thing you're testing but you also have to test like, will people make money trading with these strategies? Because you started with like a finite set of like your own trading strategies, right? Yeah, that's right. I think it really helps that all of these are back tested. So like we really, and this is part of being opinionated and actually 
Kyle, who who writes uh, content for us, uh, who's fantastic. And actually, he was at Vanguard for a while and, and joined us. At least we have some people who know what they're doing. <laughs> he wrote this piece today on like the value of backtesting. And like backtesting isn't perfect, obviously. Like first off, you know, they always give you that asterisk that says like, you know, past returns are not predictive, uh, predictive of future returns. And that's true. There's something very pernicious in backtesting, which is overfitting, which is just that you can like try, you throw enough spaghetti at the wall, you're going to find something that works, right? You can cherry pick data that makes you any strategy look good on, on a backtest. It's not perfect, but... I have found personally, even before going, it is so much better than the alternative, which is just making shit up as you go. <laughs> how, like, how can how can the latter be superior? Well, right? even like, just the backtesting, like, I got to imagine that's like a pretty freaking killer feature of Composer. Like, if I come up with a strategy before Composer and I want to backtest it, what the hell am I going to do? Like, I can't do that. It's incredibly difficult. There's a free tool that a lot of people use called Portfolio Visualizer, but it's very basic. It only uses monthly data, so it's it's very coarse. So like the most recent data it has will be like 45 days or whatever on average delayed. It doesn't feel like a modern analytics tool in that sense, but it is impressive. It was the most impressive free tool that I was using at that time. But yeah, like backtesting is super hard. It's super, super hard. It's computationally difficult and intense. You have to get all that data clean, all that historical data and have it somewhere. It's a really, backtesting is really hard. And then creating an accurate simulation of, of what actually happened, that, that, that in itself is, is really hard. I was listening to Jim Simmons at, at Rentech, which is like the, by far the most successful hedge fund of all time. There's a great book, uh, The Man Who Solved the Market. And he was being interviewed and he's like, yeah, our strategies, people would probably be surprised they're not as complicated as you probably think. He's like, the one thing that I'm just like not even worried about anybody competing with us on is just like accurate data and accurate backtesting. He's like, we spent years just like, accurately estimating transaction costs and how orders are filled and what things actually look like had they traded like that that he said you know that question alone is so hard that nobody you know he thinks nobody except for them actually does it well and that's their <laughs> advantage is they actually and his whole thing though is that like the the future is like the past like rentac the reason it's the most successful one is like we're just really really good at actually figuring out what happened in the past most people fail because they didn't actually they didn't actually simulate things properly you can actually truly simulate it, then like, no, actually a lot of these things are pretty predictive of the future. That's their whole like raison d'etre is, is that, is, is just like really accurate backtesting. So clearly, you know, you can do some pretty incredible things with that if you just do it really well, if you know what you're doing. Every time I read a book, there's like a new concept I'm obsessed with. And after I read the principles, I got obsessed with backtesting. And uh, it's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Did you try and implement backtesting in other places in the company, like in your decision-making process or in your hiring or in your, do you apply it more broadly than just for the trading strategies? Yeah. Maybe I don't call it backtesting, but yes. Yes. I think we are genuinely a more data-driven company. We like to have a record or provenance trail of decisions, of events. I wouldn't say we're totally systematized. We're not like Bridgewater. My guess is that's mostly PR. <laughs> I don't rate people after interactions. And if they rated after me, I mean, I would probably, you know, destroy my ego. So I think we're all too delicate and fragile to have the, uh, the true Rentec social currency score or whatever. But like we have an amazing uh, analytics lead, for example, like really early in our company history. So like we have more tracking, for example, set up than a typical startup our stage because we like to track things and, and see how they perform and how things, uh, yeah. So yes, I think it, it has influenced, uh, it has absolutely influenced how we make decisions, how we analyze things. David, I remember you did this in kind of a crude way when you were at Madrona and you were trying to answer the question of like, 
what makes for the most successful founders of the biggest companies of all time. And it was, of course, you know, it was like a... Well, you know what I used? Excel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, like, I, I have the spreadsheet. But it's like, okay, like, let's look at the backgrounds of all the people who started $100 billion companies. And let's look at, you know, different markers and private company data. Like, if you're trying to analyze startups, is so much harder because you don't have the ticker. You know, you, you don't have the the second by second tape. Well, it's also all private. Right, right. Most of that data is completely private, yeah. Exactly to your point, Ben, are like, this is so hard. I did that analysis when Theranos was worth $9 billion. So like that was a, a big data point in the analysis, right? Like, <laughs> well, obviously that shouldn't have been worth $9 billion, you know. There uh, was pretty material non-public information in that case, right? So yeah, one thing we do is we do money ball hiring. I'm not even sure if our staff fully knows that, but yes, our, our hiring is uh, is very structured in Moneyball. Like it's all it's highly highly analytical. But and, and we didn't actually completely start that way. You know, it's funny how many times you have to be kind of hit on the head with the, this. You have to keep relearning the same thing over and over. And like, oh no, this definitely applies in this domain as well. But yes, like we learned the hard way actually that like no, you need to be as analytical as possible. Moneyball. Tell us more. Some of it's a trade secret. I can't. I can't tell you everything because it is because <laughs> this. You know that hiring, like obviously, is like the hard. Like the last year, maybe if the markets crash, it'll flip. But like because there was so much money sloshing around, fundraising was easy the last year or so, last nine months at least. And then hiring is like brutal, right? Because it's just the other well, side. It's, of it's the, like the any equation. market, right? It's yeah, obtaining capital is easy in this market, and, and deploying, deploying it in a profitable <laughs> way is really useful. Hard. People, yeah. <laughs> so some of it I, I can't uh, share, but yeah, like well, okay, so maybe not the specifics of the hiring process, but you know, you guys are fully remote, of which many companies are now. But like, tell us about what that means for you, because you could take it to a like pretty extreme extreme. <laughs> we are completely distributed, sixteen people, all in different cities or not necessarily cities, split between Canada and the US. And I started the company, I was in Nicaragua for most of the the company's history. So I moved back to Canada a few months ago because the situation there got a little dicey. And, and, and the funny thing is like, I'll be the first to acknowledge that remote being that distributed is, is not perfect. Like there are many, many issues and downsides to it. But I think if you just acknowledge them head on, that you can sort of mitigate a lot of those issues. But, you know, life life is a series of trade-offs. How do you communicate? Is it Slack? Is it email? Is it synchronous? Is it asynchronous? Like what? Yeah, so I, I have a very controversial take that. Actually, so even though we're remote, I think that if you're remote, like async is actually a terrible idea. Like fully async is like terrible. I know I know GitLab loves it. Other people love it. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of, especially a lot of engineers love it. So like if anything, you know, I'm the type of person who would, like async, but I just like have finally had to accept that I don't understand. I don't think like a, a consumer product company can be like fully async. And the reason why is like, yes, async is is less disruptive, but like you you need synchronous communication. You need a lot of synchronous communication if you're remote because you already, if you're physically not in proximity, that already affects trust. It already affects the bandwidth of communication so much. Things get lost in contact and translation. They get confused and muddled, and, and and there's been so much research on that. So why would you make it harder, right? So, so the big thing, and we we're always adapting and learning here, is just like even recently we realized, like just you know the biggest feature that we take advantage of is like Slack huddles. Just like hop in a huddle, okay? If if there's any confusion, just hop in a huddle. And and I think there was like this weird insecurity that a lot of remote companies had 
and it's the classic, like right now everything is so polarized. Like you have to be one extreme or another. It's like, if we're remote, then we have to be like GitLab and do everything asynchronously. And, uh, you know, the only way we communicate is through like comments on like a GitHub, you know, PR or something or a Jira ticket. It's like, okay. Or, or you're like in office and you spend all day in meetings. It's like, well, isn't there like, like, you know, can we be a little more thoughtful about this? So I think, I think with everything with this stuff, you just kind of, you know, you kind of, you do it. You have to take it from first principles, like say, okay, what, what, what makes sense for us? What doesn't make sense? Tell us a little bit about where Composer is today. <laughs> we launched in open beta the end of last year. And the really cool thing is we have a lot of like super fervent, you know, super users that are out there spreading the Composer gospel, which is really, really cool to see. Uh, especially as someone who was a early, you know, built something as a as a customer of my own product, to see people who are even more fanatical than myself is a is a pretty, pretty fun and pretty exciting thing too. Where where do those people hang out? Do you have your own communities, or is it on Reddit? Or it's a variety of places. A lot of it is Reddit. That's a lot of it. Some of it's like Bogleheads. You see people on on different online communities in these sort of like niches and i'm sure there are also some in discords and things like that that we can't even they're harder to to dark even pools. discover yeah dark pools exactly exactly so that's that's really really cool i mean the other really exciting thing like i mentioned is just like it's just the team like we have this we have this really really killer team not that was a very hard thing to to build so like i said we're at 16 today that's pretty wild because that team is now extending you know my original vision in ways that I never thought of. And they come from really different disciplines now. Like it's a very, very interdisciplinary team. And so they can kind of cross-pollinate ideas and work on things in a way that, uh, you know, really does create like this collective brain trust that, yeah, is a lot, a whole lot more powerful than anything I could have come up with. You were the first not boring portfolio company. You and Backy wrote Excel Never Dies together. There's the not boring memo on Composer. How much of you know sort of the interest in Composer, either on the user side or on the hiring side, or frankly on the capital raising side, do you look back and you can kind of attribute to that? Oh, huge! I mean, I won't even hold any punches there. I think, without a doubt, especially relative to the check side, I mean, like the highest value add was was having Packy, having that, and that, and that was luck, right? Like. When he wrote the memo, I think he had like 7,000 subscribers. And he was not a known entity. I mean, we have funny stories there. But when we were doing that, like some people were even like, why is this guy? I mean, is he going to add value? You know, like people ask questions like that. And, I, and now those some of those same people are hitting me up like, please, can you just make one itch? I just want to talk to Packy for 10 minutes. And can you squeeze him into this guy? You know, it's wild how fast things change in this world now. Like... That that was that was eighteen months ago. I still, I mean, just even saying that's it's crazy. That was eighteen months ago. That delta is insane. So some of that was was luck, but his platform, that kind of thing, is the future. Those kinds of newsletters and thought leadership is a huge part of our distribution strategy going forward. And he, he informed a lot of that, and he inspired us to think about composer. As not just like an app, not just trading, not just strategies, not just a no-code tool, but it's content, right? Like each of these strategies is content. 
and really rethinking what content even means. Like these strategies are content you can write around them and then you can share them. And that's part of the reason, like I said, we have someone who like writes full time for us internally. Like all those moves were, were, were inspired by just watching the Packy's meteoric rise, right? Like that, that was hugely, hugely uh, inspiring to us. And then I'm biased here, but he's also like actually, I can honestly say he's a fundamentally very good person, which helps a lot. He's someone, he's, he is, he's, he's a good person. Like that, 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 that helps a lot. That means a lot. I can definitely second that as someone who's very interested in this evolving media business model. Like, do you use the not boring investment memo as like collateral for recruiting or for like, do you find yourself sending that to people? To oh be yeah. Like, Especially early on. Now it's a little stale, but absolutely in the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. We would share it with, with investors. We'd share it with people. It was very valuable. And then also he created that like diagram that showed us as like, I, I still use certain sort of metaphors and things that he created in that and sort of images like calling a composer an entropy wrangler or that, 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 that image that I think really resonated with a lot of people where it was like, okay, he created this like little diagram that showed, you know, Robin Hood on one side and robo advisors on the other side and composers in the middle. Like that was a packy creation. And that was just like, he has a way of taking things that are kind of complicated and distilling them in a way that's just very relatable. And we've kind of remixed some of those elements into our own collateral for sure. Your story is bringing up for me memories of uh, being in business school you know, and beyond, uh, but of Andy Ratcliffe and his framework that he always talked about of that, like to be a successful startup, you need a secret or an innovation. You need an unfair advantage on the product side but also on the distribution side and you got to get both oh, of those, yeah. you know, how does this guy have so much distribution? He didn't spend any money on it. Hey, well, it's better to be lucky than smart. Right. Right. But like, it's cool. Like, <laughs> you know, you had this like secret on the product side of like, Hey, there's all these people out there. They're hanging out in reddits that like some of them are idiots, but a lot of them are not. And some of them who are idiots are going to learn to be not, and they're going to want tools. That's like a product secret, right? Absolutely. And then <laughs> you get like this, you know, free, amazing, like a tiny, you know, angel check into your company leads to, uh, you know, something that can completely change the distribution equation for you. Oh, totally. You know, people argue about what's more important than product or distribution. It's like, well, it's both. I was, I was in a retreat with some CEOs and one of them said, yeah, it's like asking like, what's more important, a brain or a heart? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't live without either. So you, you better have both. <laughs> they both matter a whole lot. And there are situations where like a product can be so, can have such perfect product market fit that like the answer on distribution is, well, it spread virally because people just loved it deeply and shared it with their friends. That's an answer too, but that is not an answer that you can scientifically count on in the process of crafting your startup. Yeah. I mean, Eli Gill had some good things on that. And I think the argument there is, that most of the things that look like that wasn't actually the case. Like Facebook, all the sort of classic examples, it wasn't actually the case. Like Facebook did all these aggressive tactics for distribution. Airbnb did all these aggressive hacks for distribution. Uh, Google, Google paid billions, billions. Google paid billions for distribution and doing like- Still does every really year. like gangster shit back in the day. They were doing like, they were distributing like toolbars through like, you know, adware packages like it was super aggressive they were paying dell to install a cool and it was by far the best search engine so 
you know, and I say this as, a, as a, someone who, who is much more from a product and data background, not a marketing person, but like, it's something you have to learn. It's like, no, like everybody, everybody has to do distribution. Well, Ben, this has been awesome. There's a lot of investors that listen to the show, you know, anything they should sort of be thinking about or, or that that's exciting that you want to share with uh, potential future investors. I'm not too worried about fundraising. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm shocked, shocked that you're not worried about, but no, it's, uh, well-deserved. I'm not going to do the, uh, used car salesman thing at the end. <laughs> All right. Well, what about who should try out composer and where should they go to play with the product? Any serious investor that wants to earn better risk adjusted returns and wants to stop flying by the seat of their pants and wants to get rid of their messy Excel sheets, they should go to www w.composer.trade sign up today you can play around with it you can start you don't even have to transfer money to start playing with it and uh, yeah do that today i love it oh one final question i meant to ask earlier i love the name where did composer come from are you first or are the like web3 composability people first I think we were before that. Web3 wasn't a term when we came up with Composer. <laughs> I think Packy made composability a Web3 term because of you. I mean, they swagger jacked us. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the Composer thing, there's a, there, it goes on a couple levels. One is that uh, I love music and like originally, like I didn't have the talent for it, but I wanted to be a musician back in the day or a composer or something. So there, there's that sort of personal aspect of it. And I do think that there are all these parallels between great software and great music composition. And Rich Hickey's actually talked about that a lot, who's the creator of Clojure. Incidentally, I didn't even know that until we, we, but we actually use Clojure and that's a total coincidence. So that's really, really cool. The other is a little bit more direct and, and a little more practical, which is just that Composer was designed from the very, very beginning. And you were asking the meeting like, okay, like what, what was a guiding principle that narrowed down sort of this design space? And we wanted things to be composable. One of the hardest things when you create strategies is like, okay, I need a, like a container. I need to neatly encapsulate the strategy so that I can create a strategy that is composed of other strategies. And uh, it sounds abstract, but it's not. Like we all do this when we invest because like you use an ETF. An ETF is an abstraction really over a whole bunch of underlying assets. And it, it, there's a great book called Trillions. You should read it that talks a lot about this. But like we take ETFs for granted. It was a tremendous innovation. And it was, it really was like an abstraction that allows you to like treat this giant basket of stocks as like an individual stock. And we said, wait, could we do that with a sort of logic? So not just assets, but actually the logic that operates on those assets. And then could you compose those strategies and the sort of like Russian doll sort of structure? That's the origin story of that name. Love it. Love it. Well, all right, LPs. This has been awesome. Ben, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. With that, LPs. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Cheers.